Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres dominant, social, sexual blind, three wing two, with three seven one trifix and ENFP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome back, everyone. Man, these interviews have been so fun for me. You know, I'm going to admit that I usually don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing when I'm doing it all the time anymore. Uh, I used to be a lot more strategic, planned, you know, thinking about everything. And I realized that, yes, there's some benefit to that, but I think that at times it felt like it took me to my lower side of my six arrow, which um, would have me thinking that if I just knew everything or I I had figured it out in my mind, that then I would get better outcomes. And what I've recognized is that a lot of the activity that happens in my mind is fueled by my emotions and my heart. And I fall into that classic three pattern of think, do, think, do. So I'm actually practicing letting go of thinking a little bit more and trying to just come to a place of presence, a place where my heart feels open. I'm getting a little bit more familiar with what that feels like and seeing if I can connect with whatever feels most true for me in the moment and just letting it sort of flow from there. And this has required a lot of courage. Um, It definitely feels overwhelming to just share like how it is to be me and just kind of show up a little more authentically with how I am. Sometimes I listen to these interviews and I'm sure anybody who records and put things out there realizes that there's a total cringe element to it. Um, You become aware of habits and ways of speaking and things that you're just like, wow, is that me? Yes, it is. So anyway, thank you for coming back. If you're here, Um, there must be something about the way I'm showing up you're enjoying. I really appreciate it. Always open to feedback. Uh, Both love hearing things that you enjoy, of course, and also um, really look forward to being challenged and look forward to be offering feedback for growth. So once again, contact at EnneagramBlindspots.com. I'd love to hear anything that's coming up for you. And when I listened to this most recent interview, this is actually with one of the most important people in my life. Um, His name's Drew, and he is one of the four significant intimate partners that I've had in my life. And as I was listening to Karen and Sebastian, I was just realizing that, yeah, I mean, I have 30 years of romantic experiences with nines. So there is definitely something about this three nine thing. And when I think about that, You know, I'm always listening to different teachers talk about nines. I think nines are fascinating. I think they're one of the most complicated types in the Enneagram. I think this is why nines often will mistype. And I think this is why there are so many flavors of nine. And I'm particularly very interested in the instinctual stack and how that 
impacts the way a nine shows up. As I looked at the three relationships that I've had with nines, one is self-pres dominant, social blind, one's self-pres dominant, sexual blind, and Drew, who you're going to meet today, I think I have decided is social dominant and not sure about the blind spot. Um, Once again, I just am continuing to evolve. Um, I'm putting this platform out so that you can hear the way that I'm thinking about it after having done many uh, years at this point of study on the instincts and just sharing my understanding. But as always, I'm hoping to get lots of experts on this podcast who I can ask the questions to and say, when I see this, when I see that, you know, what is that meaning? Uh, one of my favorite interviews that I heard recently was Peter O'Hanrahan. I hope I said that correctly. And he did an interview on working with the emotions and the body on the practical Enneagram. This is a great series. If you haven't checked out this Enneagram podcast, I'm hoping I get to meet the woman who is currently doing it. She's um, doing some great interviews, and I love hearing these teachers talk about what they've learned. What this podcast is about, I'm discovering, is both discussing the teachings, but then also seeing how that shows up in real life with real people. And I'm hoping that we get into the tender areas that people don't always talk about, because I love learning about the teachings, but sometimes they feel a little sterile. And when we see people actually showing up and talking about how it is for them, in context, you know, with another human, I think that that's really interesting. So one of the things that I'll share is that I've mentioned my dad's a self-preservation eight and my mom is a self-preservation one. So I grew up with two parents that live in the body center where we know that this is an anger management system. So both of my parents have um, easy access to wanting things to be different than they are. And they both have their own ways of making that happen related to their structure. But what I realized is that as a little child, you know, I grew up in an environment where there's nothing wrong with anger. You know, anger is expressed. And when you're a little baby, um, I'm sure that there are times that that's a little terrifying. Um, Not that my parents, you know, were never violent in any way, but just being around people who are operating from the emotion of anger and less connected to fear, sadness, shame, some of these more vulnerable emotions, I recognize that. I was really wanting to perform in a way to maintain the attachment to my parents so that I could make things more right in their world. I mean, I definitely want my parents to be proud of me. Um, Naming anything on this podcast that I think might upset them is really hard for me because the amount of love and care that I have for my mom and dad is like huge. Just like I know the amount of love and care that they have for me is huge. And, you know, I think that's why I can be brave. I think that's why I can step out here and say things that they're probably like, what the hell are you doing? And sometimes I ask myself that question. And yet... 
um, I can be in that space. You know, I really feel like going into the more vulnerable emotions beyond anger is really important. This morning I was with my dog walking group and usually the conversation is pretty uh, superficial. And today somebody made a political comment that, you know, woke something up inside of me. And I just decided to go there because I think that having these more intense conversations about what really gets us going inside and hearing all of the perspectives and all of the different views is really important. So I don't think it's any surprise that I've been drawn to nonviolent communication because I see the benefit of anger. Anger is a wonderful life force to be connected to, but I also am deeply connected with how important it is to express our anger in a way that doesn't cause harm for others. And I think that Many of us get angry in violent ways, even if that is stonewalling or silent treatment or, you know, just uh, contempt. There's so many ways that we can silently be violent. So I'm just naming that I think it's important to be able to go into our anger and get underneath. And that's what resonant healing is all about. So that has really helped me to sift through my primary emotion, which has also been impatience and anger, and really connect with those deeper heart energies that are fueling the entire structure. So when I listened to um, the episode I referenced from uh, the Practical Enneagram, I think that Yes, the practical Enneagram. Uh, They were talking about how do we help nines get in touch with their anger? And the funny commentary that came up to me was you have them live with Karen Ants for a period of time. Because sometimes I am like, why am I here on this earth? Like, what does the universe want me to do? And I actually seem to be very good at helping nines get in touch with their anger. I have a special way of (laughs) luring them in and then pissing them off. So um, that's kind of fun to observe for me. I'm not sure it's always so fun for them. But um, yeah, I definitely have lots of experience with nines. Um, I have experience with the beautiful side of nines. What do I love about nines? Oh, God, they're sensual. And I love their tenderness. And I love that they do have this way of grounding me. And when I can tell that my heart center is disintegrated, I can put my hands on my nine and they just sort of absorb the charge. I've heard it said that like a nuclear bomb can go off in the belly of a nine and you don't actually like see a lot of impact on the surface. And, you know, having a father who's a self-pres eight also, you know, his emotions are very, very, um, hidden, I would say. He has a very flat affect, unless he's pissed. And then you know, like, there's no doubt that my self-pres eight father is angry, like when he's angry. But I definitely grew up with a father with a very flat affect, which is part of the reason why I think I'm attracted to nines. My dad has a big nine wing also. And so there's something about the nine with the flat affect, but knowing that there's like so much going on underneath the surface that actually feels normal to me. So I think that that's part of the reason why I'm often attracted to nines. At the same time, you know, nines are really trying to stay away from those 
emotions and things that get stirred up inside of them. I love how Peter O'Hanran is talking about the neurobiology of each type, because I've really witnessed that firsthand. Um, My nines that I've known, they really, really have amazing mechanisms for not allowing things to create disquiet on the inside. I was always amazed at how my ex-husband could fall asleep while four children were literally like tearing the house apart around us. And um, the ways that nines can just disappear when things are unpleasant has been something that I've recognized just means that too much stimulation, you know, they need some time to regroup, to come back to themselves. And if we can create a safe nurturing environment for our nines that are under stress, um, oh, so worth it. That's what I'm learning. So please um, enjoy this next interview. Uh, This is with my very special Drew. And I'm so grateful that even with his social dominance and his aversion to, you know, going into these deeper, more tender, more honest conversations, that when he's ready and when he's willing, oh my God, so much brilliance. And I know that everybody who knows and loves nines have also had this experience. So what's my piece of advice? Back off. (laughs) Uh, There's a big hormone Enneagram has said, you know, if you're frustrated with your nine, the problem is you. That's probably true. I I definitely know that um, nines, when we're having a hard time accessing or connecting with them, it means that they need a break. It means they need some self-care. It means that they need some space. At least that's what I've found in my experience. So huge growth edge for me. I have said that my lowest energies that I have access to are that five and nine, that ability to hold the spaciousness. So really big growth edge for me. Once again, so grateful Drew is here and I hope you enjoy this next conversation. Drew and I um, have been in relationship of some sort or of another with each other for almost four years. Uh, We actually met on Bumble, but we're just going to be Enneagram friends in the beginning because we met through a common love of the Enneagram and then ultimately ended up dating, living together for two and a half years. Uh, Drew moved out almost a year ago, but we've continued to be in relationships since that time, although it looks very different. So I invited Drew to come and talk with me about the challenges of the 3-9 relationship, because I think when we listened to Karen and Sebastian, we heard a lot about what's wonderful. And I think that since there are so many 3-9 relationships out there, that it's important to also name what the struggles might be. And Drew and I thought that we might share a little bit about how we're working with this. And I first landed on how popular this type was when I listened to Big Hormone Enneagram do episode 108 on the 9-3 combo. So um, a lot of the thoughts I'm having came from that episode and listeners may want to check that out. But um, the Big Hormone Enneagram crew thinks that over 75% of the population are attachment types and that the majority of those are sixes and nines. So you'll often see nines with threes or sixes. That's a very common combination. Um, You also will see threes with sixes, very different energetic vibe than the three nine couple. And we'll have to get some 
three sixes on here to talk about that. Um, you rarely see threes with other threes. Uh, what the big horm hormone Enneagram people have found is that you can see nines with other nines or sixes with other sixes, but oftentimes there needs to be this polarity that's actually bringing somebody together so that there's something a little bit more different. And that could be in an instinctual stack that could be in trifix. So as you listen to Drew talk today, you can notice the energetic differences between he and Karen because Drew is a 946, whereas Karen is a 926. So I'm going to invite the listeners to just see what they pick up on the difference between the 0.2 energy operating on a 9 versus the 0.4 energy. I think they're both social dominant. We're going to see what Drew um, wants to share with us here today. And in terms of Myers-Briggs, um, Drew is an INFJ or maybe INTJ. He rides the FT, um, you know, kind of down the middle. And I think that that's because his six fix makes him more like a T and his four fix makes him more like an F. So it just depends which energy is more active in my experience as to how he's coming across. So now that I have framed up Drew for you, I'm going to invite Drew into the space to share how he knew that he was a nine right from the get-go because many nines are confused. I'm also going to let him talk a little bit about his view of instinctual stack and the fact that he doesn't like the stacking phenomenon and thinks that all of the instincts are here in different ways and let him talk about that a little bit. And then, yeah, I think we'll take it from there. So, Drew, please. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is going back to... Uh, 2005 or six, when I first learned about the Enneagram and read about um, the different types. But I think, I think I actually at first took a quiz and I don't remember, I mean, cause it's so long ago, but I don't know why it wasn't um, up for debate for me that I was a nine. I think I just saw things that felt so true about me that like, when I read the nines description that was that just felt so completely like me, especially in ways um, that I shut down or respond to stress and just the things that I seek, I, I, it just very much felt unignorable or like not there was no other type that I read about that at all felt as strongly resonant with me as the nine. Um, so I think, and there was one time in maybe a year later that I took a quiz and it, I came out as a four and I was like, I don't think I'm a four. Um, but other than that, I mean, like I've never tested as anything but a nine. Um, Can you ever. see why nines sometimes think they are fours though? There's a lot of talk out there about how many nines misidentify as fours. Why would they do that? What do you know about the nine structure that actually is a little four-ish? Yeah, I mean, I know that, I mean, they're both withdrawn types and I think nines experience a lot internally. And so that there's, like, I like fours a lot. They're one of my favorite people. Um, I feel like I really get fours because um, I think I share a lot of the, the moodiness of, of a four um, and some of the angst and just feeling things um, pretty deeply. And so I think those two 
types um, understand and like each other. I know it's been written um, how often that they can, there can be a mistype, right? That four or nine's mistype is four, but not the other way around as much, correct? Yes. Do fours sometimes think they're nines? Or no, nine? no, yeah. definitely not. Right. So I think the, for me, like what felt clear that I wasn't a four was just, um, I don't indulge the feelings the way that a four does. And I think that, I think that just the dissociation power that nines have, I don't feel like fours tend to carry as strongly. I'm sure, I'm sure there are times that they do and they, they withdraw, but there's not, um, I don't think fours often have the numbing tendency that nines do. Well, and I think that fours withdraw, but you hear all about their emotion on their way out, whether that's anger, whether that's sadness. Whereas I think that nines are having all of that emotion, but they don't want their emotion to create tension or disconnect in the space. So they just kind of like disappear and it stays all on the inside. Whereas fours, you know, might like flick you off on the way out the door. Yeah. Yes. A four will make a bigger show of their, of their emotions. I like, for me, I just want to leave. I don't, I don't feel like I need to let everyone know, or if they know, I want, I want them to recognize it by seeing me leave. Absolutely. I don't want to, I don't want to verbalize the emotions or feel like I have to justify or talk through what I'm feeling. But like, there's like sometimes the punishment through withdrawal thing, like, Instead of getting into a verbal thing about it, I just want to make you feel shitty by leaving the room that you wish I would stay in. I'll vouch for that. I've experienced that many, many times. And, you know, what I notice about it is that it is like so obvious that you're angry to me. And this is also the difference, I think, between the fact that you have a one wing whereas my ex-husband has an eight wing. There's a big difference. Like when the nine with an eight wing, especially self-pres dominant gets pissed off, they just like totally disappear, reject you. And it's like you cease to exist for them. Whereas my experience with you as a nine with a one wing, that self-pres lower energetically, that there's so much anger that's radiating off of you. But unless you know you're nine, you might not hear anything like you're very quiet about it. Like there's no, there are really no words said. It's like completely energetic. And I kind of describe it as more like, oh, the black cloud just moved in around Drew and he's disappearing into this black stormy fog that I don't hear anything, but there's a lot of turbulence to it is my experience. And so something I'm, going to say that I will probably only solidify your belief in the social dominance uh, thing for me is that if I'm feeling that um, and people are around and you more likely than anyone would, you know, might say like, what's wrong. And in that moment, especially when there's people around or like, I'm not sure how to verbalize it. Like I, I don't, I know that I'm angry, but I don't know yet how I want to communicate that or what I want to say about it. So like, that's why so often when I feel 
upset and not ready to address it that when saying what's wrong, like the easiest thing, even though you know something's wrong and I know something's wrong, the easiest response in that moment is just to say nothing, to say nothing's wrong or because it's basically communicating. I don't want to talk about it, but like <laughs> it's it's just like ignore me, just like let me. It's fine if you notice that I'm not in a great mood, but I think I have a resistance to the what's wrong question because like in that moment, I'm not ready to be like, here's what's wrong. And especially when there's other people around, because like then to me, that's creating discomfort for others. And that's something I just don't really do very often. So yeah, that's, I, I think it's a pretty classic nine behavior. A hundred percent. And, you know, John Luckovich has actually written a piece on um, why nines mistype as fours. But I think that what you just brought up is so important because, you know, a four gets very wrapped up in their emotional experience and don't really care how it's going to affect people on the outside. Whereas a nine, I think, is always afraid about how their emotions are going to affect people on the outside, especially if they're social dominant. You know, you're really, really fixated on how is it for the group here right now. And I also, you know, I think that you actually enjoy that I do pick up on what's wrong, because I think that many nines just people don't even recognize that there's something wrong with the nine. But when you're in an intimate relationship with a nine, like I feel like I'm very, very closely tuned into the fact that there was just a ripple to your wall. Like I feel it in my heart. Like I can just feel that up. Oh, Something's pissing off Drew right now. And when I say what's wrong, it's because I really deeply want to support you. But I can see how that's annoying because it can take a long time for nines to actually connect with what is wrong and what they want to do about it. Um, one of the things is that with the point nine, there's more of an unfolding. And, you know, in the beginning, when they first talk to you, you might get the first or second layer about what's going on. But in my experience of knowing nines, it really can take a long time for them to get to the bottom of what this is about inside their experience. And they often will just that self-forgetting, sometimes they stop unpacking it. It's like maybe they do their first or their second layer, but then they're just like, eh, I don't need to think about that anymore because that might take me into a place that I don't enjoy looking at. And I think you even said that to me yesterday when I was prepping for this podcast and asking you these questions and you're like, eh, I don't even want to look at that part about myself. I wish you would stop looking at it. You said something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think I think one of the things about being a 9 is that or maybe it's just me, I don't know. Like I I think there's this deliberate decision about when I want to feel bad about something. <laughs> um I think I will avoid uh thinking about something if it's unpleasant. And when someone just kind of puts it into like in front of me, um, when that's not something that I'm choosing, 
uh, I yeah, I have a little bit of a shame response, or I, I think actually my response is like rejection of it, but it's rooted in shame. Like I, it's something I think that if there are things that I don't like about myself or things that I've done or whatever, things that I carry regret about, I think um, there is an element of shame that I'm just like, it's, it's really, uh, it's really hard for me to go there unless I'm like deciding that I'm like, okay, this is a therapy session. You know, like I'm going to step into this space where I'm making the agreement to explore this and look at things that I don't want to look at. But I think when it's just sort of, you know, someone bringing it up to me without warning, it's like, duh, no. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like you were even naming how I like it when my iPhone gives me photo memories because a lot of them are nice. But then sometimes, you know, a photo memory pops up of a relationship that went bad. And, you know, obviously that photo brings up a lot of complicated emotion and I get more pleasure, like, like the emotionality of whatever the photo brings. I feel like I have more welcome and capacity for in a given moment. And I think also my seven fix allows me to just shift away from it pretty um, adeptly if I don't want to think about the pain. Whereas I think for you, you get a little bit more stuck in the pain and you really don't enjoy just having a photo memory pop up without your consent. Yeah. And I would just say like, think about like, the difference like our different trifixes like just what a nine six four um experiences in a moment like that would be very different from what you would experience and like i i think there's just all this like things get stirred up within me and yes i'm not saying like it's all it's 100 always negative but it often leads to this reaction that uh is what you're talking like it is the like oh that this is there's pain here like there's there's some pain and sadness and it you know it's often bittersweet like it's all of it but like yeah i and it's the same i i've told you before like there are there have been times when uh you know facebook will be like hey it's been 10 years since this post and the post was about when my dog died you know it's like <laughs> Hey, you're just going throughout your day and open your phone and here's the dog that you loved for <laughs> his entire life. And, you know, like, and it's just like, that's, that's a perfect example of like, I don't want to think about Jack right now. Like, I don't want to think about how much I love this dog. I'm trying to get through my day and there's enough going on without bringing that up. Well, and I'm just laughing so hard right now. And you probably know where I'm going, but like. Oh my God. When your dog died, your most recent dog died. Yeah. The other one, Zoe, right? Four years later. Yes. Four years later. And Zoe would die. And like, you know, that was really hard for you as well. Like, you know, you really get attached to your animals. And, you know, for me, I wanted to kind of like 
be in the morning of your dog dying with you like all the time for like a year and we'd be like randomly walking somewhere see a dog and I'd be like oh Drew dogs died Drew's dog died three months ago and I would just like mention this to random people and you're like why are you doing that first of all it's a weird Debbie Downer thing to say to a stranger secondly like why are you bringing it up for me I wasn't thinking about my dead dog and now here it is and it was just kind of a funny thing that to me felt connecting and to you was like incredibly weird, awkward. And I still don't think you quite get why I would do that. I mean, I like I did <laughs> usually, I think, laugh at it when you did it. I wasn't like right, I didn't yeah. get sent into a. Yeah, but it highlights yeah, it, with humor this difference we have about it, I would say. Right. Because not in a million years when I think <laughs> to be like you know, volunteering that information that is sad for the person that I'm with and telling a stranger, hey, their dog died. (laughs) So, you know. Well, and for me, I'm like, we all, yeah, I mean, but for me, we all have this experience of the tenderness of loss, you know, and for me, connecting around like, oh, like your puppy's so sweet. It's tender to see this because mine just died. (laughs) I don't know. It's just a weird, it is, it's weird. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this is what it's like to be hanging out with Drew and I, we just really come at things from very different angles. It's often quite funny when we're not annoying each other about it. But um, Drew, anything more you want to say about that? Or I have a new question I was going to shift into. No, let's keep talking about my dead dogs. (laughs) 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 We've got 40 more minutes to fixate on Zoe and Jack, may they rest in peace. Go ahead. (laughs) Thank you. All right. I thought it would be fun to say that, you know, we met through the Enneagram, but that I thought I was an eight when we first met and you were believing that. And then somewhere along my studies, like about a year later, I came home with this big announcement that I was a three. I was wondering if you could share your reflection on why you totally believed I was an eight, even though now you feel really confident that I'm not. And I just think that all of these typing nuances are helpful for listeners. So do you want to comment on that at all? How do you know that? And do you agree with my 371 trifix? And like, you know, what is it that you see about that, that um, people might hear if they're trying to figure out their own type? So I think at the time that we met, I didn't know that many threes for sure. Uh, I think I just had overall less fluency and you in don't the like Enneagram. Like, huh? like you didn't like threes either. Like when you've met other male threes, don't you find them to well, be annoying? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like that. <laughs> um, yes. Like I think in male general, nines yes. often hate male threes. Well, I think. Male nines, I think often, not always, but often don't like male assertive types. I mean, that's right. that's my perception. Like, I think um, there are definitely exceptions. Like my friend, John, who's an eight. I love John, and I, but I think he's social eight with a pretty heavy nine wing. And so like, there's, it's, it's so much an energy thing for me. Like when I feel like there's this really assertive alpha male energy that is just like kind of in your face. Uh, that's when I'm like, eh, no, thanks. But Chi Chi's um, a three and so am I. So evidently yeah. there's something about a female three that's not as offensive as a male three. 
I, well, yeah. And I mean, that's a whole different conversation because I think that I just give women a lot more grace in a lot of areas than I do men. Um, but yeah, I don't, Chi-Chi, I mean, who knows? I mean, that's that's going back a long time and I don't even know if that's a correct diagnosis of her, but um, I just, that's the thing is that I just didn't know that many threes in general, um, nor did I know that many eights, but like what I, I think the, you know, very broad image that I had of an eight, which is why I didn't doubt it when you said that you were an eight was more just energetic, like, or strength and fearlessness. Like, I think when I met you and just saw this um, confidence and energy and like big emotions, I, I was like, yeah, it seems like an eight. <laughs> like, um, but then when you were sort of thinking about maybe I'm a three and when I learned more about what threes are, it made a lot more sense. And I just didn't really have that knowledge of threes in the past. So, um, you know, talking about the, the shame element of a three, like that makes sense. Whereas eights kind of don't care. You said they're shameless. That's another reason why I know I'm not a seven because sevens are pretty shameless as well. And yeah. Yeah. I think when I was. You've seen a lot of time with me, like in a shame spiral, like that's how we kind of know I'm a three because I'm definitely no stranger to shame. I come out of it, but when I'm in it, it's, it's pretty intense, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think, (laughs) um, I think the, the difference once it, like, I think one of the things that clicked was just how eights often, um, they can get over things more quickly, like, and where nine or threes so often want to be the best, want to be liked, want to be seen for their accomplishments. And it just seems like eights are less attached to that. Yeah. And I mean, that's because threes are the only assertive type that's also an attachment type. So really, at the end of the day, what we're looking for is acceptance. And I think that sevens and eights as hexads are a lot less worried about the attachment they have to you. If you don't like them, if something happened, I feel like they just kind of shift. Whereas the three as a heart center type and an attachment type, I mean, that stays with us pretty deeply. Yeah. So once, once these dots were connected, um, it all made sense to me. And so, I don't know. I I think that once you landed on that, um, and then I know that there were times when you sort of looked at like, what about self-pres four maybe, or like, what about a two? Like I, cause I think, and those, I, once you said three, I had a hard time ever coming off of three. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Because I know that I would come home and be like, maybe I'm this. And you're like, no, you're not. And I'd be like, maybe I'm this. And you would like, you would do this really cute nine thing where you would listen. But at the end, it was just like, okay, that was very interesting. You think all of that and you're wrong. (laughs) Well, and one of the things I remember learning about threes a long time ago was just how often they see themselves in other types. And so do nines and sixes, which is why I was always so surprised that you have always known you're a nine. Like, there's no doubt about it. And I agree with you. You are a nine. Yeah, I 
I I don't know. I've just never. I can understand because the thing is, like, I for sure understand other people's motivations and feelings and like I can put myself in their shoes, but it's never for me been like, but am I that? Like it's more uh being able to relate than it has been uncertain of identity. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'd love to shift to talking about the instincts because that's a big focus of this podcast. And you and I have had many super interesting conversations about this. And you've also been with me on the journey as I found my way to my stack, where I think I've also thought there are six different combinations of stack for every Enneagram type. And I think you've watched me try on all six, right? Probably, yes. Yeah. And how do you feel about my stack as self-pres social sexual blind? Does that, I mean, that feels true for me now that I've done all this exploration and work. Do you still doubt it sometimes? Or do you think that's my stack? Or do you just so hate the stack philosophy <laughs> that you don't even want to have this conversation? Because you could also just talk about your issues with the whole stacking uh, phenomenon, because you really believe that different instincts rise up to be utilized and you feel a direct connection to all of them at different times. What do you, where do you want to go? Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say is that like, I, I'm fully willing to say that like, you know, if you, if you take a snapshot of someone at a moment in time, um, I think you can definitely be like, this instinct seems a lot louder than this instinct. And so that would make you say you're this dominant and you're this blind. And I would say like, that's, that's true. But why can't that change depending on what the person is going through in their life? Um, because I know that for me, it feels like there have been times where different motivations have, or different instincts have driven action or decision. And so um, I think, and we've talked about this a million times, but I think sometimes for me, when it becomes too fixated on the granular or the um, just the specific ranking and just getting so fine about <laughs> how they're defined, I, I, I'm like, that's where it gets a little bit hazy for me a bit because I think just based on my own experience it feels it feels like each has been louder at different times and so I guess it's just hard for me to be like this one is always the dominant this one you know what I mean like and this one's always blind and I'm like I can I can for sure see why again like moment in time it's like this you're not self-preservation dominant because look at these things or these uh choices whatever that that a self-pres dominant person would do and it's like well wouldn't it couldn't that possibly show up stronger at a different time depending on outside circumstances and how you know what i mean so uh, yeah that's why i think i'm not i don't think i try to um completely reject like the idea that like someone is this dominant but it, it just feels like but that feels like it's right now like that to me yeah. that's just sort of an expression of where they are currently and maybe in three years that person is going through something and they're making a choice that looks really 
dominant from another instinct. And so like, would you say that, you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I yeah. just think it's, it's very fluid for me. Well, I'd love to sort of explain why I do think that we have a dominant, a middle and a blind. Um, and what I've learned from mostly David and John from Big Hormone Enneagram about my own stack, because I did a lot of private coaching with them in order to learn where I've landed. What they would say is that the dominant instinct is running the show. Like you're dominant and you're secondary. Like these are just the things that you're going to prioritize so that if you look back on ultimately the life decisions that you're making, that it's going to have a certain instinctual flair. So for me as self-preservation social, it was really all about establishing my career and establishing my family and sort of establishing my base. And, you know, the four kids that I have and the, you know, involvement with my parents and my tribe, like there's a lot of social energy, but like the self-pres things around financial security and living in the home that I want to and having the temperature the way I like it and just being sort of cozy and comfortable and like having that base has been really important to me throughout my entire life. And whenever the base disappears, and sometimes that disappearing looks like these transition moments when I'm not living with somebody or in partnership, that can feel really destabilizing because it's like my base isn't quite set. And then when the base is there again, that's when the other instincts sort of come out to play. And I would say that as social middle, primarily that has shown up in my deep dedication to my family. And even when I wasn't taking the career lead, because my ex-husband was the one that really took the lead on his career and I was working part-time and raising four babies and during that time, though, my three energy showed in, I'm going to be the best mom. And like when I knew I wasn't the best housekeeper or, you know, I didn't feel like we had the best marriage, um, I just didn't look at those things. But I like would, would be like, what am I identified with that I'm putting all of my energy and hard work into? And the one thing that I know that I have neglected has absolutely been play. It's been self-expression. It's been following passion. It's been doing things for the sake of the joy it brings me, not some kind of work product or something that's good for my family or my tribe. That's been the part that I've been really working on the last 10 years because there's that saying, all work and no play makes Jack or Jill a dull boy or girl. And I would say I really resonate with that. And so a lot of people have wondered if I might be sexual dominant if they meet me in the last four or five years, because I think I realized how painful it was to be so sexual blind. And now that I've touched into that energy I feel like I try to presence it and be a lot more conscious of how I bring it into my life because I think I was starving from that angle for so long that when I first connected with the sexual instinct, I just kind of blew everything up. So I think that when you connect with your blind spot and you bring it in in a more conscious way that has more presence, that that's when we really start to come into balance. And a lot of the choices I'm making now 
are choices I would not have made when I was so fixated in self-pres. And I would say my social is shifting to not just focusing on my family and my tribe, but actually into the broader world and really longing to make a more um, broad social impact as opposed to the small one I had with my patients very locally, my family very locally. It was there, but it's now sort of expanding now that I'm developing other things. How does that sound for you if I make that reflection on my stack, Drew? Does that make sense as to why I'm viewing myself that way? It does. And I think it also supports <laughs> like what I feel. Like I think it, because I, I hear what you're saying, but like when you say that you've, um, you've kind of experienced more of the other instincts because you, you've had so much self-preservation and in the last however many years you said 10 um i think and you said like you know people who may have met you in the last four years or so might say that you're sexual dominant like to me that that's that's what i'm talking about i guess is that so um so i i think like i just have less attachment to being like this is you're this dominant always for your for your whole life Versus just being like, no, you're acting out of this instinct primarily right now. So I think, but I, I, yes, I hear you. And I'm like, well, maybe we're both right. I don't know. Well, we probably are both right. I love that. I love the both and, and I love that there's always paradox. And what we don't want to be is dualistic where it has to be this, or it has to be that anytime you're stuck in that kind of a paradigm, I think it's important to realize that you're probably missing something and both are true. So this is why I love this platform where I want to invite in as much disagreement, maybe even more disagreement than agreement, because this is where I think we learn and this is where we tease out the nuance. But the reason that I believe in the stack is that I think through my decade of personal growth work, I have become less neurotic about self-pres. But at the end of the day, I'm still self-pres dominant. Like, would you find it very shocking if, say, we don't speak for the next decade? Would you, I think that it is unlikely that you will find out that Karen Ants ended up homeless and penniless and can't take care of her basic needs. Like, I don't think that's ever going to happen because I'm self-preservation dominant and that's always on the radar to some level. What do you think? Um, so I guess where I would question that, um, is that I don't know that that's a self-preservation thing. Or if that's just a, you have this um, this Lamborghini engine of a brain that just would never put you in that position. I mean, I guess it's it's. I'm not just. I'm not trying to say that. Like, no, obviously there are smart people that become homeless because there are other things that might be broken in themselves, but. Um, for me, I guess the reason that's so hard to wrap my head around doesn't have as much to do with self-preservation as much as it is to like, you're a smart person who's just always capable of survival more than it is like, it's something that you prioritize. Mm, Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love hearing you say that and my heart feels warm because you're naming how competent and capable you think I am, which is actually you know, where I think I lead with and the people who 
have wanted to love me the way that you've loved me, like really do appreciate that about myself. Like it's a, um, I have a certain strength, stability, platform, structure that people are like, wow, like no matter what else is happening, Kara kind of knows how to land on her feet. Like she knows how to like kind of keep it together and move forward. But you were saying that it's because of my Lamborghini of a brain. And while once again, very touched that you think my brain is, you know, super powered or whatever you, however you want to describe it. But I actually feel that same way about you. Like, I know that you don't have the same educational pedigree that I have in terms of how you did in high school and, you know, other educational endeavors you have not identified as being quote unquote good at school. But yet you have an intelligence that may not be something that excels in a traditional academic environment and your brain does not move at Lamborghini levels, which I don't think any 0.9 brain does. I mean, between my three, seven, one energy, I'm like, well, with the two wing, I'm like in go time, like every second I'm awake. Whereas for you with your nine, four, and sometimes your six, you know, I can totally see how your anxiety can make you a little indecisive. Sometimes you just aren't in go mode all the time. So sometimes I feel like on a self-preservation front, you have a little bit more shutdown or paralysis, but it's not because you're not as smart or I don't know. That's what I'm throwing back. What are you, what's coming up? Well, I mean, I would say that, yes, I agree with everything that you said, but I, you know, I think the um, not having the type of energy and academic brain <laughs> makes me more likely to end up on the street, <laughs> end up on the street, <laughs> because. And that's like, why you have I'm, me, baby. You can always move into the house. I'll always have. Yes. <laughs> Um, and before you want to run out screaming again. <laughs> so while I appreciate you putting me somewhat on the same level, I think there's just a truth. I mean, we've talked about before how America and capitalism reward some brains or some skills or tendencies, you know, that more than others. So, yeah, I don't know. I I think, like, when I think of self-preservation, like, I, I sort of, in some ways, um, my self-preservation sort of terrifies me sometimes. And maybe that's why it's blind, or maybe, I don't know, maybe that... Yeah, you it terrifies like you it because you know it could sense. get you in trouble. Like, out of all three, it feels like the one that's most likely to get you in trouble your self-pres blindness at times. Well, I mean, but besides that, like, I think I have this low-grade anxiety over work, for example, because I have experienced a fair amount of work instability, maybe more than a fair amount, maybe a terrifying amount <laughs> of work instability over the last five-plus years. And you can even go back further than that. And so, and I can, I can also recognize that people sometimes say, well, that's a sexual dominant person or a sexual, I don't know if it's specific to nines, but that a sexual nine is someone who absolutely would go through that kind of professional instability. 
Um, but it's, it's terrifying for me to, I'm sure this isn't just me, but like when I think about the possibility of losing the job that I have right now, I mean, that's, again, no one wants to think about losing their job against their will, um, or that it's not their choice, but I think I have such a hard time when I'm in those seasons. It it feels so bad and so hopeless and scary sometimes that it's, um, it's just not something that I like to think about. So I think like right now there is this sort of this constant, and I think it's, we're supposed to experience some stress, right? I mean, it's, it's just good for us to build some kind of, resilience to stress. I don't think we're supposed to live stress-free lives. But um I think that there are times when I'm just anxious about about work like it is this scenario that gets invented that kind of snowballs in my in my mind of just like well what if then you lose this job like what would you do? You know, like just kind of going many steps ahead. Um Well, and And, I want to just name that I love you're bringing this up because this was actually one of the biggest tensions in our relationship. When I met you, you were in this period of unemployment and then you got a job and it was an amazing job. And this was when everything between us was like really gelling nicely. Like this was the best six months that we had together because you were working in a job that was satisfying your self-pres needs, your social needs and your sexual needs. Like it just felt like it was a six month period of time where you had more satisfaction and fulfillment from work than it sounded like you had ever had. And then, and we were living together during this time and I mean, I think that we were both under the impression that things were great. And then a global pandemic came and you happen to be a live event producer, which is one of like the worst jobs to have in a global pandemic. And you entered into a period of 18 months of unemployment. So knowing that this is something you're very sensitive to anyway, plus I want to name that the pandemic was a lot harder for you than it was for me because A, you're an introvert. And B, you love having your own autonomy and choice about how you move throughout the world and you need a lot of alone time. So actually entering a period of time where you were locked in the house with me, my three teenagers, a new puppy, my parents were unable to see another human being that you needed, were unemployed and going through a lot of financial stress because of that you know, it's not shocking that that was a terrible situation for you. You couldn't go to the coffee shops you love. Like, you just couldn't get away. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, (laughs) I think uh, that's one reason I was able to run pretty much every day was because for me, that was a chance to do something that didn't feel like it was violating CDC rules if I just went outside in the neighborhood and had a chance to put on my headphones and you know it's helping me not just get away but obviously there's an the the exercise is good for my body it was it would always make me feel better and sometimes one of the ways that I would uh deal with anger or frustration would just be to remove myself from the house and be able to burn off the energy and just sort of connect with the body so I think I figured out, I think 
partially or largely because of you that one of the best strategies for me when I'm feeling angry or frustrated is to run. And for like, that was just like the best possible pandemic solution um, often was just to be able to burn that and be by myself and get away. Yeah, I just want to mention that I think that this is one of the reasons why my self-pres dominance and let's just call your self-pres low um, was super helpful because when I met you, you also weighed quite a bit more than you do now as well. Is that true? <laughs> yes, <laughs> officer, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, did you lose 30 or 40 pounds once we got together? Somewhere in there, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's call it 40, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You lost like 40 pounds. And didn't you used to like drink soda and eat fast food and didn't exercise? And yes, this I was, was a disaster of an adult. <laughs> That's how you want to. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, Weren't you <laughs> just an embarrassment of a human being before we met? <laughs> well, but yeah, but I, mean, yeah, I, I was. <laughs> but I mean, I literally fell in love with you. Like, in this unemployed state that we just described. So, I mean, you were not killing it in self-pres. I'll just say that when we right. met, that I was, was not probably your stri- yeah. six months away from being homeless <laughs> when we met. That <laughs> so was a good thing that we met when we did. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, is that, I mean, I don't know, like... I think that I was like more into you than you were into me in the beginning. Like as, as it always goes for us, I land on things first and you come around to them over time. Wouldn't you say? Uh, often. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so <laughs> like, <laughs> that's an example of you being like, don't you think this is always true? And me being like, I'm willing to acknowledge it's often true. Because then I want to say, well, when was it not true? And I, of course, you don't have an exception in mind. You just know in your gut that it's not always true. Uh, okay. Yes. Is that true? Sure. Or do you have something? Yeah. So this is what the, what the relationship looks like. I'm spewing things that I'm saying as if it has truth with a capital T, whereas anybody who knows me and any listener should say, Everything I say is my truth with a lowercase t, and I want to change my mind on the next episode if I suddenly disagree, because I just like to say things. Um, I'm an extroverted intuit, so all of my intuitions are happening on the outside verbally, whereas I know that Drew does introverted intuition, and many of you may identify, I think a lot of nines do introverted intuition, so it's happening on the inside, and it's going to take more time before that unfolds but well, back, I, yeah go ahead i was gonna say i just i think one of the a huge difference between a three and a nine or maybe a, a nine and maybe any assertive type is just like the amount of filters that have to go have to something has to pass through to actually leave my mouth oh um, yeah especially with your six fix right so i think um the number of times I have to like sort of check in, like, is what I'm about to say true? Well, and <laughs> Do I, think I believe that, it. And I yeah. think that's social dominance as well. Like you really put a lot of import in when you say something, it's run through about a dozen different filters before it leaves your mouth. And so there's actually a lot more certainty, commitment, 
clarity when you do speak. Whereas I happen to mention in my, you know, tearful intro to like session six, that episode six, like, wait, people are just taking things I say as if it's what I mean and who I am and that, you know, I speak without thinking much more often than I actually put it through some filters. And that's how I know I'm not social dominant because I'm always very surprised when I say something that somebody else doesn't enjoy because I know I came from a well-intentioned place and I just didn't even imagine that it would come across the way that it did. Whereas this has also been a point of tension for us is because I think since you're a nine and you don't like disruptions in the space, plus you have a six fix, plus I think you're social dominant. I think this is where all of your filters come through. So when you and I are just moving through the world together and I just say something without thinking, your one wing is often incredibly judgmental of what I just did, even if you don't say that to me, because you're like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Like, you would have never acted that way in a million years. And I would argue that because you have 12 filters before you say things, that sometimes the world does not get to benefit from the immense wisdom I know that you have inside of you because you're so careful about who and what and how you say it. Um, yeah, I don't know how to respond to that like i think um but it's true that i make you cringe in social situations or just because i'm speaking too loudly when we're walking on the sidewalk or you know there's a lot of times where you're like people are hearing what you're saying and i'm like so what it's a random person on a bench over there but it really stresses you out uh yes if it feels like the the thing that we're talking about feels of a private nature then yes yeah, well, and I'm going to name PDA, for example. Like, I'm very touchy-feely, but I have learned maybe I can hold your hand in public, but like anything beyond a very casual handhold, if there are other people around, you just want to literally disappear and you can't drop into that moment at all because you're scanning like, who's watching? What's happening? What is she doing? Tell her to stop. Like, that's what it feels like for me. Uh, yeah, I think when, when there's a PDA moment, you're right that dropping in is very, very hard. I, I think like, I, I don't have a lot of capacity for it. I'm, I'm fine with it being a short thing, but I don't want it to be too intense or too long. Right. Like, it's like, you're tolerating it. You're not enjoying it. Yeah, I, yeah, I suppose. Right. And even like inside the home, like I often, you know, might walk in front of the window without being dressed on my way to be getting something because it's just faster and easier. And you're like, the window is open. Like you never walk around the house naked in front of open windows, right? Never. Uh, yeah, correct. Right. And even like when my kids are home, like big boundaries around like how we are in front of the kids or what we might do if the kids are in the house. You know, you really get more. Um, you can't drop in if any of yes. those things are going on. Yeah. Yes. I'm hyper aware of other people's experience at all times. And I think that that's I think that that's social dominant nine, you know, hyper aware of what's going on with everybody else at all times. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm yeah. making the argument. Yeah. 
And, you know, if there are other Enneagram instinctual experts out there that want to email me at contact at EnneagramBlindspot.com and decide, you know, what, how is it landing for you? Like, these are the things I'm so curious about. Um, because we heard Karen, who's a nine, who's an ENFP, and she was talking about really enjoying PDA with Sebastian. So this was something that just came up for me as a distinct difference. Um, even though I think that Karen is social dominant, I think that twos um, are a little more like relational and, you know, into touching and stuff. Whereas I think the four energy might be a little more like withdrawn than that two energy. So that was one thing I was seeing. But I also think it's just being an extroverted. I think it's that P as well. Like the the J is constantly wanting more order and predictability. Whereas I think the P in the Myers-Briggs is a little more flippant, spontaneous, and we get ourselves into trouble a little more. So now I want to talk about um, the experience of sexual instinctual energy. Do you want to talk about that from your own perspective, Drew? And then I can share, like, you've thought you're a sexual nine. You think you're sexual dominant. Do you want to share why? Uh, yeah, I think just because, um, and I, I would name that there are times, I think, when it comes to environment, um, I, I feel sometimes like the self-pres, sometimes to me, they, they overlap. Like, I don't, I don't quite know. It's like, if you're feeling this thing, does that feel self-pres or sexual? Maybe social. Um, but like when you were talking about the, you know, the house that you wanted kind of thing, um, I guess I have a hard time understanding how that's not also, maybe not instead of, but also a sexual thing. Because like for me, like an environment can create a charge and it can be, you know, like a self a self-preservation environment to me is just like quiet <laughs> or, or just like the basic necessities, like the, just what do I actually need at the most basic level where like the sexual thing to me feels like liking the environment and getting so much out of your surroundings. And so I guess I'm questioning like, is the, is your, you know, getting the house that you want, can that be two things instead of just one? You know what I mean? Like, I think there is, there are, there, there's, it, cause it could be both. I mean, like when, if you have a self-preservation uh, instinct that is being satisfied by like, I have this much space, you know, that there's, there are practical things that probably satisfy the self-preservation instincts, but then also liking the, amount of natural light you get or you know i i think there are other things that would satisfy the sexual instinct at least that's been my understanding i think sometimes of the you know the sexual instinct not just being like a one-to-one -one, um attraction five. repel yeah. thing right but that it can also be just much more of like getting juice from how something can feel yes um beyond just the self-preservation need being met. Yeah. And like, let me give my experience of this. So um, I got married at 23. And at that point in time, I was very fixated on getting through medical school, getting married, having a house and having babies. Like that is, it was totally the self-press social agenda. There was like no sexual instinctual energy involved in that whatsoever. So when I got married, I literally let my 
you know, one wing two mother who is also self-pres and has very, you know, I'd say um, 1950s, you know, sensibilities about like what a home should be. I literally let her register me for like everything I wanted. I mean, I went along and she's like, you should, you should either register for this or that. And then I just like pick one of the two choices. Like I had no idea what I wanted. I was such an attachment type that I just wanted the home that like my parents were going to approve of and create a world that like other people would approve of, but I had no sense of what my flavor is. So fast forward 25 years later, I hate everything I own. And as I've started to discover, like, what do I actually want my house to be? What do I actually want my furniture to look like? What do I actually want on the walls? Like, I have huge fantasies in four years when my youngest graduates from high school. Like, I'm moving into a two-bedroom condo, and I am just going to have an estate sale and have people come through and take almost everything in this house, because now that I actually have an idea of what I might like, there's almost nothing in my world that resonates with that now. So that being given, though, this is my blind spot coming online. Like I now I'm getting a sense of my own flavor and my own vibe, whereas I never even had that until maybe the last two or three years I've developed this aversion to like who lived this, like who created this house? And that's sort of my waking up. And you know, and now I can just know what that is. And it's okay. I can live here the way it is for three or four more years because I'm not sexual dominant. I can just tune it out, focus on self-pressed social things, knowing that a time is coming when it will have my flavor. Whereas I know when you moved out and you got your apartment that you live in now, you were also really excited to give it a vibe because this was always my home. There wasn't really your flavor here. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I was just thinking that I had this decision with like getting a couch and it's like the the self-preservation choice, which I don't think it's there's no debate that I'm not there's no debate that I'm self-preservation dominant. I think that's clear. Um that's usually not the loudest voice. Do you me. mean self-preservation blind? You said I think it's clear I'm self-preservation dominant. Right. I'm saying like, I don't think there is a debate. We're not debating me being self-preservation oh, dominant. Got it. Thank you. Okay. That's not one of the options on the table. <laughs> um, so I was sort of in this place of like, well, I just need a couch. Like what's a not offensive, cheap couch that I could get that'll be comfortable. And, f but like, I wanted something that had style. Like I wanted something that like when I saw it like it created a little bit of a reaction in me and i mean i've i felt that as well when um and you went with green velvet let's just let the audience know that yeah <laughs> yes. very cool yes um but i just notice how like when i was looking for a place to move i mean like there is just this it's it's not driven by self-preservation. It's definitely, to me, it's driven more by the sexual instinct. And it's not even a, like, I was at this other building where the building was nicer than the one I'm in now. And there was a rooftop area that had like fire pits. And but I'm like, I'm not going to go up there like that. I was, but I was very, when I first saw the building, I was very turned on by the design of the building. Like I walked in and it was just like very 
cool and trendy and just it it definitely hit something um that wasn't really self-preservation driven and i guess you could argue that it was social driven but like i just never wanted to be with other people in that building like i never wanted to i'm gonna go up to the rooftop and see who's up there like i stayed away well and i want to name you're naming something really important so you are an introverted social dominant person according to me and you know many people who are social dominant would identify with enjoying being in groups and having affiliations and being social. And I just want to highlight that that's not definitely not always true. You could be social dominant and actually have an aversion to most people and most groups being so (laughs) right. And, you know, you are very, very selective about the social engagements you actually choose to participate in. Because there is so much about what's happening socially that you reject, but you are hyper aware of it, like way more aware of it than me. You're way, you have much stronger preferences around who you will and won't hang out with than I do. Yes. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, Here's an example of that. So there's a group of people I play trivia with every other week. And recently, that group was hanging out, but also there were other people as well. It wasn't at trivia. It was at someone's house. And so it was, it was just one of the people in the group brought other friends who were in town. And that was not nearly as fun to me because I found some of the people to be super annoying. And, you know, there was, I wasn't going to just get up and leave because that would feel somewhat insane um and maybe that's how i'm social dominant too is that that's not the proper thing but i don't know that, that, and that the, feels nine, like throwing... the nine not wanting to create a stir right for sure i was having fun talking to some people but then these other people would talk and i'd be like god you're you're ugh. um because they kind of drove me crazy but you know so it was like the group i'm like i'm good with this six number the not Enneagram six, but I, I'm I'm good with us six when it got to 10. And I was like, all right. So like the it's like as you increase the number of people, you're also increasing the chances that someone's gonna be annoying and is gonna ruin my time. And that's whereas as a self-pres person, yeah, I totally get annoyed by people, but I just move away and like ignore them, which is not always the social nice thing to do. People maybe notice that I do that, but you're much more worried about how is this going to affect the group? Whereas I'm a little bit more focused on what's happening for me. Yeah. Uh, yes. And we're all just like sitting around a fire. And so like, there doesn't feel like there's an escape there. It's not like I could like, it wasn't like a party where I could just move away and go into a different part of the room. It was sort of like, it's noticeable if someone gets up and just disappears. Well, and that's where I'd probably even make an excuse. Like I have a headache or I have to work early tomorrow. I've got to go. Like I just leave as soon as I'm not having fun. Yeah. And I make it nice. Like I do it in a seven-ish way. I might make a joke and, but I'm just out of there if I don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. So we let um, Karen and Sebastian were brave enough to talk about the sexual instinct in terms of their experience of sexuality. And um, I know that you're social dominant and this is a nine and this is probably your least favorite thing to do. But I think that one of the reasons why 
we've stayed connected is because we actually vibe more in the sexual instinctual zone together than anywhere else. Like your self-pressed blind spots have been what I really need to work on in order to let go of my own neuroses and let you do you. And I would say your um, social blind spots have been what you've had to let go of in order to tolerate and enjoy being with me. But I would say that when I can get out of my self-pres head and when you can get out of your social head, I think that we vibe in a way with our sexual instinctual energy that I don't think either one of us had experienced before meeting each other. Yeah, I mean, well, I can also say that um, when I think about the past relationships, like it is, um, it is interesting to kind of go back and like now have these definitions that I didn't have when knowing those people in the past. But um, yes, no, I agree that we are for sure more aligned there and that there's um that's probably the instinct that drives our connection for sure yeah and i want people to start talking about how there's such a difference between sex being driven by the self-pres instinct sex being driven by social instinct and sex being driven by the sexual instinct and um yeah i think that once you have tasted a sexual experience that's really that vibing, transcending, energetically intense experience, that as a self-pressed dominant person, I now am sort of disenchanted with other types of sexual experiences because now that I've tasted the blind spot, that's pretty much what... I want to have in all of my relationships going forward. Yeah. I mean, that completely makes sense to me. I feel like that's, um, I think having the language and knowledge to sort of recognize what you're connecting over with another person. Um, to me, that's really valuable and allows you to, um, just operate and, design, I guess, a kind of connection that I feel like it serves you well. Yeah. And last winter when we were breaking up, meaning you were moving out, I think that we hit some stumbling blocks because your social dominant instinct started having some guilt and shame around the fact that we were still sexually involved because it all of a sudden brought up fears that maybe you were doing this for selfish reasons and you got really hung up on what was best for me and the boys and how did it look to other people. And, you know, from my perspective, there was also some self-pres sexual stuff coming up, which was like, well, I don't want to be with anybody else. Like, let's like establish baseline sex here. But that didn't really work for either one of us. And I think that as we got some space and as we settled into our new routines and our new lives, when we are together, I think that we have both accepted that this is really a sexual instinct connection. And for now, we're in this space where I would say we're, you know, still living our lives, opening up to other things, but there's something so special about our connection that we keep periodically coming back together. 
Yes, I agree with everything that you said. <laughs> I don't know that I have much to add to that because it all just feels uh, well said and true. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this is um, a classic attachment thing, too, is that, you know, we're both attachment types and we have major attachment to each other. But there's also been a lot of disconnect. So when you see two attachment types together, there's almost this it doesn't feel right unless there's some tension and some things that are wrong. And yet we don't really separate. It's like we're still very attached, which is what I think attachment types will often do. Whereas I think with hexads, I don't know, it has a different feel. It's like we're not together anymore. And yet we're also very together. It's like hard to define. It doesn't really have any kind of definition. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't feel to me all that important, I guess, to define at the moment. It's not, but that may sound weird to people. You know, people are often asking me, what's going on with you and Drew? And I'm like, yeah, we don't talk about that. I don't know. I'm seeing him this weekend. That's it. Yeah. Well, I think I think I just maybe in general have um, have a tendency to reject definitions. I mean, we're seeing that with like the the stacking. Um, You hate being pinned down to just about anything. So. Yeah. You do. Like, no matter what I say, you argue with me about it. Like, that's just my experience of our relationship all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You never say, oh, yeah, I totally think you're right. You never say that. Oh, I don't know. See, here we go. I, <laughs> I, I never say that. I don't think that's true either. I think there are times when we're in agreement, but I think that just you say a lot of things. So, therefore, the number of times I will be like, eh. You know, like maybe there, there's some six skepticism, a hundred percent, that radiates through me. And so, you know, if you say ten things in a day, which is a low estimate, but <laughs> I might eight or nine times, I might be like, yeah, I mean, maybe. Let me think about it. Totally. <laughs> Where well, the other times the- I'd be like, sure, yes. Yeah, well, it's one of the things I love about you because. I absolutely hate a partner that's a yes man. And, you know, it's a lot more fun. You help me find my location because you basically refuse to just join me in mine and agree with me. And so we constantly have this little like, well, this is where I am. This is where you are. And there's this like pinging back and forth that we do. And we ultimately come around to agreeing on a lot of things. But I've just noticed there's this really interesting back and forth dance that maybe the listeners are getting a peek at too. Well, and I think it's also, you know, the difference in our brains, like, and also just the difference in the whole like filter thing. Like you'll say something more easily than I will. And it then gets to me and I'm like, uh, need to sit with that a bit because it like, if that didn't, that thought didn't come for me, otherwise it would have passed through the filters and left my mouth. So because it's now being put in front of me, I have process of it, how I feel about that. And I think that's the point nine autonomy. I mean, nines will often seem like they're agreeing. They might not be saying no. Their face might not be even showing displeasure, but that doesn't mean they agree with you. I think it's important that everybody knows that about their nines. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I often have that experience where it, this is, it feels like this is too much work to get into this. So it's, that's the very much feels like the go along to get along thing. And I now have 30 years of experiences of being with nines. And so I have had to learn that lesson the hard way many, many times. And so now I almost do obsessive check-ins with Drew where it's like, is this a real yes? Is this a real yes? Like, are you sure? Did you check in? Do you want some time? Just because I don't really, I have a hard time trusting that the yes a nine is giving me is actually a yes and not just a going along to get along. Yes, there should be, there should be a, I don't know, I'm seeing some visual like spectrum of the yeses from nines. Like on one spectrum, there's a yes, but I don't actually mean yes, but I'm just doing it to avoid the disharmony. And there's a lot in between. And then at the the other end, there's an emphatic yes, which you probably don't get very often. (laughs) So I think, I think like just exploring the different yeses from nines is kind of funny. Oh my God, I would love it if you used your humor to create that because yes, like I easily have a hell yes and a hell no rise up inside of me. Whereas I feel like I spend most of my life trying to get a hell yes out of you. And I think it's happened two or three times in almost four years. Yeah, right. Uh, Because I think there's a lot of times where it's like, yes, but settle down. Or well, like, because I'm trying to make you happy. Like my right, three no. fixation just wants to be like, am I doing this the way you want me to? And you're like, eh, it's fine. I mean, that's usually your response. Well, and also I think there's just like a, and again, I don't want to speak for all nines, but I think sometimes there's a yes, but I can't match your energy. Like I can't give back the emphatic yes that you want because it just doesn't feel authentic. But I know that like for me, there are times and I've even heard this in a work environment before where like, I'm not as expressive as people sometimes wish that I was. And so I think, (laughs) I I think there's, you know, people often will fill in something negative instead of positive, right? Like if they're not getting something, they're not getting what some kind of cue then they fill in the negative. So for me, it would probably benefit me to give a more emphatic yes. Maybe if it's not even 100% genuine, just because to rise up to what people might need might be benefiting them. Even if to me, it, you know what I mean? It, it kind of feels like, like in sometimes in acting, they say, or like a director will tell an actor, like go bigger. And then it's always easier to dial it down a bit. So like sometimes there's the direction of like really go over the top with this. And then from there, we can we can kind of find like the middle where or like when it comes to like a voiceover, sometimes you'll tell someone like do it in a way that you just feels ridiculous because you're kind of trying to find the right level. And so for me, there's probably I need like a director constantly in my ear being like react to this thing bigger than you feel like you're supposed to because that's what someone else you know what I mean that's how we'll find where you should be when all I know is that I should not be that director because when I make those specific requests you have this immediate like I'm not doing that because you asked me so I just like (laughs) to name the whole like 
pushback that you get from withdrawn types, especially nines who don't want to do what you're asking them to do. But I think that you're naming a really important growth edge where if you do a check-in, like, yes, Drew, you with, as a double withdrawn type and a nine could definitely benefit from always coming across bigger than it might feel comfortable. For me, I should probably dial it down and not bring the expression that is naturally flowing out of me. So I think that this is one of the ways that we are a beautiful foil for each other and that we really help each other. And I think there's something in my expressiveness that you're attracted to. And I think there's something in your carefulness and caution and consideration that I know that I'm really attracted to because I would love to have more of that inside of myself. Yeah, I uh, completely would agree that there's a, there, there are complementary energies that that we have that um, feel good most of the time. Not always, but often. Well, just because they don't feel good doesn't mean that they're not important. So I think that's yes, important to name too. For sure. Yeah. When you're not operating out your fixation or your instinctual stack, it's not going to feel like you. And this is part of the work is saying, well, why does it need to feel like that which I have always identified with? Let me try on this polarity. And it probably is going to bring some beautiful balance to what it is I want to bring to the world. Yes, I agree with all of that. Well, this feels like a wonderful place to wrap up. This has been a really special conversation for me. It feels vulnerable to um, just step into this space with you publicly. We've been doing this behind the scenes for a long, long time. And I'm just really grateful that you were here and willing to come out and talk about all this with me because I know that it's not always your immediate impulse to be this public about what goes on inside of us and between us and all of that. Yeah, I guess at the moment, I'm not really thinking about the public thing too much. See, maybe I'm not social dominant because I'm not thinking as much about how it's being received. I'm just kidding. Well, and I think that just when you speak, like you're, you know, you enjoy co stand-up comedy and performance. And even though you're an introvert, there's this part of you that when it's game time, you're not introverted at all. Like once you've decided to go out and be social, you know, people might think you're extroverted because you're so personable. Yeah, there are times when people hear that I'm an introvert and they're surprised and I'm like, oh, you don't know me. <laughs> right, because I would not be, I would never think you're an extrovert. But when we go out, I'm so pleasantly surprised. And I think it's because you're social dominant. You know exactly how to do the social thing. And when you do have a yes inside of you and you're happy to be going, you are as charming and extroverted as any ENFP three or seven that you might meet. Really? Yes, As you any, really are. Because I think I, I think I more often, um, I think I'm better in smaller groups. Like I think when it's a few other people, then yes. But I, if it's a, I don't know. I, well, I'm I thinking of your company parties. Christmas party when we went to the to, to the sure. Christmas party. I mean, but that was your group, and you had already decided you were comfortable around them. But that's the good thing about being with somebody who's not social dominant. I don't like big groups either. Like when we go to my Christmas party at the hospital with like, you know, three or 400 random doctors, I'm like, okay, I want to go be pretty, stand around and do the social three thing for like 
90 to minutes to two hours tops and then get me out of here. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Drew. This was super fun. I think the listeners have heard enough of us for now. And uh, yeah, thanks, babe. This is really sweet to do. You're welcome. Bye. What a sweet interview to do. Thank you, everyone, for being on that journey. Um, as I was listening to our conversation, one of the things that I was laughing about is the stiffness that you kind of see come up between Drew and I when we start moving into the sexual instinct zone. And I definitely think that that's part of my sexual blind, you know, really leaning into what is the sexual instinct. Like, I just notice this stuff comes up in my body and there's like a tightening and a stiffness and a fear. Like, this is not a zone that I feel super competent and natural in. And without, you know, going into personal details, what Drew and I didn't name is that you know you're in the sexual instinct when it is about magnetism, energy, chemistry. It's very hard to describe. And as a sexual blind person, I don't even want to try. I hope that we get more sexual dominance on this podcast because I think that many of us are sexual blind. Maybe Drew's sexual blind. I don't know. Um, he thinks he's sexual dominant for a lot of the reasons that you heard or that's been a thought that he's had. And I know that both of us think about this zone a lot, which may mean that it is in the blind spot because we tend to get more hung up on the instincts that are in our dominant and our blind spot. Although that second instinct can, of course, you know, stir up lots of trouble as well. But I just want to name that that's what we feel. There's like this addictive nature to a sexual instinctual connection. It feels a little bit destructive to that which you've always held most dear. And there's definitely this, I love it, I hate it kind of feeling in my experience. It's like, I am doing this in spite of my best judgment, um, because my best judgment is often thinking about more practical things. And I know that Drew and I have had many, many funny moments where it's like, why are we together? And oh, here we are again. So just thought I would wrap up that commentary on the sexual instinct for anybody else who's curious and still learning in that domain. And once again, here's a plug. Please reach out if you're sexual instinctual dominant and you have more insight for us because those of us who are blind, we just would love to learn from you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.